0: Today is May 22nd, 2019, and my guest is journalist and author Michael Brendan Doherty. He writes for National Review. His new book is My Father Left Me Ireland An American Son's Search for Home, which is our topic for today. Michael, welcome to Econ Talk.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure.
0: Your book is an extended meditation on being a son, being a father, your Irish heritage what it means to come from somewhere, how we think about nationalism, national identity, American culture, and a little bit more. But I think that's enough. And despite all that, it's a very short book, and I found it deeply moving. It's written in the form of a series of letters to your father. Give us a sketch of your childhood and your relationship with your father.
1: Sure. Um I was born in 1982 in the suburbs of New York in New Jersey uh in Bloomfield New Jersey um to a single mother my mother Mary Ellen and she and I lived with her parents in their family home my father and mother met while my mother was traveling through Europe um kind of in the late 70s early 80s um you know, my mother had her best friend was an Irish Londoner, and uh, this best friend was was dating my father's best friend, and then my my parents met, uh, had a kind of, you know, I would say a summer love affair. That's what I've pieced together through talking to my father and going through the letters, and um, then at some point, my mother wrote to him and told her that. Uh, She was pregnant, and my father, I think there was some uncertainty whether he would come and and join in in these first initial weeks, whether he would, uh, you know, come over and have a shotgun marriage, but ultimately, he decided to stay in Ireland. He went back to an old girlfriend, and in the years afterward, he built um, a family with her, uh, had three more children, uh, and I was raised here, and I, I got to see... Unlike most American families that are, are broken, um, you know, I didn't have weekends with my father. <laughs> you know I couldn't f- fly to Dublin every week um, or, or have like the double holidays that, that most kids have. I would see my father once every two or three years, um, sometimes for maybe a week or two, um, and sometimes maybe just for a few hours um and so i knew him i knew him that way and then my mother in my uh my mother never married never had any other children um and but in my early childhood she kind of filled the home among other things with lots of irish stuff and songs um, a little bit of the Irish language. She she got heavily involved in uh, an Irish language student group in the United States um, and sort of attached herself to this, I don't know, uh, half Irish-American, half diaspora Irish culture that existed in New York and in Boston uh, in the 1980s. And that would have, you know, had some, you know, my mother would have been very concerned about the troubles in Northern Ireland and would have had very strong and, and typically Irish American views on that conflict. Um, and you know, I can remember, I can remember people almost spitting on the name of Margaret Thatcher when I was young. Um, that's like an early memory for me was that there was this woman we hated (laughs) somewhere. Um, so yeah, uh, that those that, those were kind of the basics of it. Um,
0: and your relationship with your father begins to change uh, when you become a father. What happened?
1: Yeah, so um, I mean, it was slowly changing in my adulthood as my mother um, was no longer the the a kind of go between or 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 someone that he would have to deal with, you know, their relationship was kind of a wreck, um, mostly because she had fallen head over heels in love with him and had his child and he was not in love with her, uh, ultimately. And, um, though he admired her, uh, very much. And, um, so it started to change as I was a young adult um, after I got out of my mother's house. Uh, But then it really started changing as I was becoming a father and in in the year or two before um, I suddenly had uh, noticed, I suppose, as when my wife told me she was pregnant, I suddenly was filled up with this desire to do I don't, it turns out exactly what my mother did which was start learning the irish language uh start paying a lot more attention to what's happening in ireland politically um and then also in a sense i i kind of was falling in love with my father um the way my mother did um you know but as a son not <laughs> and um and so the the communication opened up and and this was happening at a time um, you know, from 2014, you know the books, letters. If you if you took uh, someone to forensically date them, the books, letters basically run from 2014 through the beginning of 2017, and it's in this time that Ireland was commemorating um, some important centenary anniversaries that were important in its history from the passage of a home rule bill to the 1916 Easter rising in Dublin and beyond. And and we're still kind of in those centenaries now with, you know, now you'd be commemorating the Anglo Irish war, uh, and so on. Um, so Ireland was sort of reflecting on its own history. Uh, and I'm kind of listening into that conversation as I am reflecting on it myself, uh, you know, as I'm, I'm sort of recovering it for my children. Uh, and in a way, it's a way of also reaching out and understanding my own father. Um, so, so, yeah, that's kind of the heart of the book.
0: Now, along the way, by the way, my, my, um, I was telling my son about your book and, and about this interview. And he said, what's this have to do with econ talk, uh, which is a fair <laughs> question. And the answer, one answer, of course, is well, I'm interested in it. But but the the deeper answer is there are a number of of larger themes besides the uh, dirty family Renaissance, which is a beautiful part of the book, that Renaissance. But it's also uh, there are many other parts of the book which we're we're going to start to turn to. uh sure. So along the way of you telling that story of your uh, your own fatherhood and how it changes your relationship to your own father, uh, you sketch out. Uh, Irish identity and the Irish national story. And in particular, you talk about that story that the Irish people tell themselves. And there's more than one. Uh, some of those yeah. stories are kitschy. Some are romanticized. You describe some of them as plastic or commercial, uh, inherently false. Uh, what are some of those stories that you think should be rejected? And and how would you describe the story that you've
1: embraced? Well, so when you look back on, um, you know, I don't know if listeners know this, but the um, uh, you know the focus of Irish politics from the late nineteenth century up until World War One is through this Irish Parliamentary Party um, and for the achievement of a Home Rule Parliament, a Parliament in Dublin, the idea of restoring uh, a Parliament to Dublin that that takes the Irish interest more seriously. Um, and in this period from 18... especially from 1898, the Queen's Visit, until 1916, there's a lot of... Um, uh, you know kind of nationalist culture and talk in Ireland there is um, an attempt at language revival the Irish language had been you know dying for a few centuries and, and then really took a tremendous fall down the stairs uh, during the famine in the middle of the 19th century um, there were attempts at writing Irish histories and many of them were pretty poor and um, you know, just full of legendary argle bargle about how the Irish language was the one um, pure language to come out of Babel. You know, it's, it's something like that, or made of all the most beautiful parts. Um, and um, you know, my interpretation of, of what is happening in this period, when I look back on it, is it's a kind of emotional compensation for the for the accepted reality at that time that ireland was fundamentally a, a broken nation and and a kind of failure right that that um there's a good chance you have to emigrate um that there's not you know ireland is not producing anything all that important for the world um at Except that for time. literature well that's that is what starts happening in the in the 20th century um is Yeats and Joyce, and then suddenly this is what Ireland is probably best known for throughout the world, is its English literature um, from this period. Now, um, what I found exciting about um, the, the kind of revolutionary nationalist heroes of 1916 was they decided to actually move a little bit beyond this kind of sentimental picture of the home. Not that they lacked for sentiment, <laughs> but but uh, they had tons of it. And they wanted to move a little bit beyond the romance, though they were very romantic. And to try to treat Ireland in this extremely serious way and stern way uh, as this great inheritance that was Jeopardized and could potentially um, disappear from the face of the earth. You know that there are nations that are eventually subsumed and um, and die. And so Patrick Pierce, Owen McNeil, and others believed part of their project would be would would be political and eventually cultural separation from the United Kingdom. And there was something, obviously, that resonated with me uh, at that time in my life where I'm becoming a father, where you're looking back on a difficult past and then trying to build something better out of it. Um, so I was naturally – I had this – not only this prime affinity from my youth for these figures, from my mother's songs and my upbringing, but also this kind of emotional um, – Uh, time in my life of becoming a father. And then you naturally, I think most of us naturally think back on our own childhoods when we become parents and decide what we want to give and what we want to reject. And so suddenly I'm reading these histories and seeing, you know, men searching through the history of their broken homeland and trying to find something kind of glorious in it to build for posterity. So of course it, it, it really, resonated with me
0: but some people Um, would react to that and some i'm sure some listeners are thinking like so you know what's that have to do with with a a boy raised in suburban new jersey what's it have to do with the daughter of that man yeah and then uh, i want to read a a short passage where you write about your own self-image in your youth and adolescence and i think it's a way that most of us raised in America think about ourselves, uh, at least many of us, which is um, we can be anything we want. We're untethered by our parents' nationality, their religion, their values. We're just blank slates, and the stylus is in our own hands, and we can write our own story. And um, here's, what, here's, what you, here's the way you describe it rather um, powerfully. When I was a child, the nation's president disclosed to us his preference in underwear for a laugh. The adult world that I encountered was plainly terrified of having authority over children and tried to exercise as little of it as practicable. At every turn, my mother, my teachers, and the church just sort of gave up and gave in to whatever I wanted. They seemed grateful when a child wasn't difficult. The constant message of authority figures was that I should be true to myself. I should do what I loved, and I could love whatever I liked. I was the authority. In the benighted past somewhere, there was pain and misery, but baby boomers had largely corrected this for us in their titanic generational battles. This I would call the myth of liberation. I was raised on this mythology, and it ordered the world around me. The future ought to be bright. This was the end of history, and wasn't it good? And so my question is, end a quote, my question is— um, you know, in the benighted past, somewhere there was pain and misery, so your father <laughs> comes from a country that had this terrible uh past where they were held down by the british oppressed they struggled for liberation they are they rise up in nineteen sixteen uh, uh hundreds of people get killed the leaders of the of this re- rebellion get executed by the british. who cares why is that why is that relevant for Michael Brendan Doherty, and particularly, why is it relevant for Michael Brendan Doherty's daughter?
1: Yeah. So, um, what I try to do in the book is show how that that upbringing I describe, in which there was um, no authority higher than the self, you know, and that this was constantly communicated to us through. You know, the culture I mean yep. in a hundred years we'll look back and I think we'll look at it as a kind of propagate a propaganda um, I mean it I, I don't I almost don't even mean that pejoratively I just mean this was what was propagated um, to us and what I try to describe is both uh, how at the time that I was most under the sway of this view of the world and in the 90s it seemed very convincing to me even to me um that there was a kind of there were there was a dark edge to it there was um one a weight it gave a weightlessness to my existence right i mean many people find that as they mature into adults part of the the crucible of forming their character is accepting or rejecting what has been given to them um and in a way, it was like the culture, in, in, its, in a kind of perverse way, was almost trying to rob me of that um, ability. I mean, in a perverse way, of course, I do exactly that. I am the, this book is a kind of rejection of of mm-hmm. that 1990s view of the world. Um, but I talk about that weightlessness, and then I also talk about, uh, in a sense, how it. It left me unprepared and ill-equipped to meet some of the real challenges of adult life, including – even including financial disaster that my mother faced late in life, including her death, Um, uh, you know – that kind of make your own adventure at all times culture actually imposes a lot on you and and actually extracts a lot of costs out of you at strange times. Where, um, you know, a, a traditional, say, like a traditional Irish culture that still exists in the Iron Islands to a degree, there's a, a, a ritual about funeral that is kind of given to you. Uh, and, it takes all sorts of forms prayer ceremony drink um what people bring to your house when i was faced with my mother's death in my young adulthood i was just given an endless series of menu options to begin creating a meaning out of this um for for myself and that actually is a uh, um that does impose a cost i mean we we think it's we tend to think that it's um a gift but actually it's i i thought it was a very mean thing to do to a bereaved young man which was say um effectively like well make a make a meaning out of your mother's death for yourself entirely from scratch if you like um (laughs) it's uh it's actually cruel in its way um because you don't – it robs you of the ability to know whether you have grieved properly or whether you've done the right thing. Um, it leaves then, you second-guessing.
0: I want to put a Hayekian spin on it. Um, in, in a way, I think um, – I mean it's a beautiful example of of tradition and the, the value of tradition. In, in America, I think today we're, we're very skeptical of that tradition. As you say, we're, we're – encouraged to think we can make our own, create our own traditions, our own rituals. And I think what Hayek would say, although he was not a particularly, uh, was not a religious man, uh, and I'm sure found many traditions unappealing personally, uh, but what he would say, and I think what the pragmatist philosophers would say, is that we don't understand everything. There's a lot of wisdom in the world embodied in tradition that is not uh, rational in the sense that if you could pick and choose, you might not choose this particular set. And so you were given the opportunity to just rationally make up your own, and surely that would be better. And yet, that ignores the fact that the traditions that evolved on those islands are, in my case, uh, in Judaism, which is, uh, you know, Jews and the Irish have some things in common. Yeah, you know. uh, language, tradition, uh, feeling of times colonialism under the hands of the British, (laughs) the hands of the (laughs) British in Israel and Palestine at the time. So, you know, in Judaism, there's incredible specific things that you do when someone passes away. And of course, there are constraints. But I think what you're arguing, what I would argue as well, is that they're actually liberating. uh, Those constraints allow you to not have to think about a bunch of things. And they are constraints that, weren't just imposed by some cruel person or some uh arbitrary person or or culture they evolved over millennia and quote they work uh right. the- and,
1: and and they allow <laughs> you and they allow you to to know that what you did was right and proper right that you did something that was worthy and that almost becomes worthy Merely because so many other people have gone this way, right? That um,
0: well, there's an honor in it
1: in that it, way, and it's well, it's not um,
0: it's not obvious that it should be a good thing. I mean, you could argue, uh, you know, it's just arbit. It is somewhat arbitrary, and uh, the fact that you feel compelled to, to do something that your ancestors did or that your family has done for Dozens or hundreds or even thousands of years. Oh, that's just a. Uh, you could argue that's just a uh, just some goofy, you know, habit. There's no reason. There's no value in that. That's All that's right. bizarre. Why would you? Why would you think that? In particular, you could say. Now, here's here's one way to think of the question. Uh Michael Brendan Doherty, with the freedom to choose whatever he wants, could say, "You don't really like Jewish rituals around funerals." So I'm gonna I'm gonna sit shiva, which means I'm gonna stay in my house for seven days and mourn the person. I'm gonna have people over, you know, as opposed to say awake, awake. That's yeah, that's what Irish people do, but I don't have to do that. And right. so you could choose your own ritual. And say I, the Jewish one really appeals to me. It's fascinating to me that that isn't what most people do. <laughs> they want to be part of that longer continuum.
1: Right, and and um. Yeah, it was. It's also part of this larger sense that this this myth of liberation also not only robbed me of things like that, right the the ability to quickly organize a funeral that would be proper and decent for my mother, but also um, that seemed to uh, to somewhat dissolve. Um, people's sense of obligation to one another, even emotionally. You know, I talk in the book a little bit about um, the way my mother's life as a single mother was not what, in a a way that the culture was starting to make a promise in the 1980s and 90s that, um, hey, single moms, you're heroes. We love you. We honor what you do. Just a choice but yeah ultimately but ultimately what because in a sense, it was her choice, right um, she wasn't a widow um, she uh, because it was her choice in a way it, it, the the fact that men weren't as interested in a single mother you know as a potential romantic partner or spouse, the fact that um people didn't offer as much help as you would offer a widow. You know, it, it was because it was her choice. So you should suffer. In a sense, it was like, you made this choice, now suffer for it. Um, was, the, was the actual private and operating message from the culture. Um, and in a way, it robbed her of her sense of feeling wronged. By my father, or wronged by her circumstances, uh, and it robbed her. Uh, and it robbed her of some of the the, the publicly proclaimed sense of heroism for um, for raising a child on her own, for working hard while she did so. And so, you know, this book was also my attempt to kind of honor her and, and portray her as someone like Patrick Pierce. This, you know. Person who made themselves into an Irish speaking Irish nationalist and then made huge sacrifices on behalf of a better future.
0: Patrick Um, Pierce being one of the leaders of the Easter Rebellion in 19, Easter Rising in
1: 1916. Right. And so, um, so yeah, I wanted to, um, honor her that, honor her that way. And so that's right. I, um, well, that that myth of liberation was insufficient, and it was insufficient to, um, to honor her.
0: I want to go back to something you said that kind of hinted at in the beginning of that answer comment, which is that there's a certain uh, self-centeredness to American culture, which we often celebrate, right? Um, right, it's it's in the Declaration of Independence, <laughs> uh, to to some extent, um, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, one person's pursuit of happiness is not another's. In particular, I'm not sure that the founders by the pursuit of happiness might have meant what we today mean by that phrase. But putting that putting that to the side, I think the I think it's it's very it's almost a cliche that Americans are disconnected from one another, that we struggle to connect to other human beings, that we're lost in our screens. And some of that, mm. of course, is pure technology. But some of it is what I think you're talking about. I haven't really thought about it and I'm sure I'll offend some listeners who don't like this kind of thinking, but I'm I'm gonna throw it out anyway. Um, you know our our obligations to each other are unpleasant often. We'd rather right. if they weren't there. Uh, I'd often, rather not visit my friend in the hospital, take my parents' phone call with their latest computer problem, uh, or <laughs> or just whatever it is um, in the middle of something. And I've tried to, I've tried to answer the phone when I see it's my parents. Try to answer it, even if it's just to say I can't talk right now, because they're eighty eight and eighty six and. They don't get out so much <laughs> uh right, and so it's an incredible kindness uh to take their call, and it's the least I can do for them, given what they did for me and I feel an obligation there, some of it's religious, you know <laughs> there's a biblical commandment to honor your parents uh and to me the one of the ways that manifests itself in my life is I take their phone call and we just are, on, a lot of us, you know, and there are other parts of my life where I'm not such a saint, don't worry, I'm not, I don't mean to brag here, but, um, and you might think I'm a fool for doing that. But I I think that sense of obligation uh, and connection to one another is been deeply damaged by our disconnect from our roots and from our religion and from our ethnic heritage, whatever it is, and it gets transformed maybe into food habits like, you know. You know, Italians might eat more spaghetti than other people or uh, whatever it is. But I think that's a – and, of course, it's a simultaneous system. As our culture becomes less connected, we're going to feel less compelled to see those obligations. So I don't want to suggest that causation only runs in one direction. But I think part of what your book is about and what you're saying now is that weightless, which is deeply appealing sometimes, that weightless, tetherless uh, way that – that we're sometimes raised and our culture often emphasizes does come at a human cost of connection
1: right it comes at a cost of connection it comes at a cost of meaning I think um and I think um you know I, I hint very subtly in the book I think it also comes at a cost of uh, potentially uh in our politics and in um a kind of a backwash or a reaction to that, uh, enemy and disconnectedness. Um, you know, one of the, the things running through the, the book is this sense of, you know, very quickly, um, a world that had been very rich for me with meaning in my early childhood, with lots of connections to a foreign country, to, um, a large extended family, a kind of larger, uh, diaspora community uh, very quickly. I mean, in the space of two decades, two and a half decades, petered out to effectively nothing. Uh, it was m- my mother and me, and then my mother dies. Um, I had I was not raised with siblings. My half siblings were three thousand miles away, and I barely knew them. Um, uh, and so that um, I think that that sense of the family shrinking that many of us have experienced I think many people my age have experienced you know watching the reunions get smaller um, and not be replenished with other young people or uh, not be continued by young people because they scatter and move. Uh, I think there's something to that that is, in some ways feeding the resurgent I mean I haven't done the studies on this of course but my intuition that informed this book was that this um, this shrinkage uh, of our social life and the those connections is informing this nationalist reaction across the world that it's just interesting to me that and like I said, I don't know if there's a mathematical formula here, but it is interesting to me that countries with incredibly low fertility rates often produce these nationalist movements and leaders. Putin, uh, you know, Hungary, Poland—they they all have seen their fertility rates plunge unbelievably. Now it hasn't happened everywhere. Spain hasn't hasn't gone that way, even though the numbers would suggest it. But I I do wonder if. There's was something to it cuz i've noticed um you know as as people noticed a lot i think that the the trolley alt right and other things i i kind of noticed that it seemed like a lot of these young men were fatherless boys the way i was at one one time too um but they uh were are looking for this much more abstract connection. Maybe they don't have someone to connect to the way I did. Um, okay. and, and so I do wonder if that's informing our politics, is that um, the, uh, the the feeling of the destruction of the family home is, is leading to this uh, impatient, fevered, sometimes fanatical sense of having to uh, retrieve the glory of the larger country around it.
0: Well, I like to say that human beings want to be part of something larger than themselves. Uh, and if it isn't country, it's religion. If it's not country and religion, it's a political uh, ideology. I, I, think, I think a lot of the uh, something that's going on, I don't know how much of it is due to this, but something that's going on is that we're tribal. Uh, human beings are tribal, uh, as Sebastian Younger pointed out in his book tribe that we talked about here on Nikon Talk and we'll find a tribe. Um and if we can't find one we'll make one and if we can't make one we'll we'll, we'll look for one and we eventually find one and, and nation as a tribe is um
1: was in decline. It's coming back for whatever for whatever right. reason. There's, there's something generational sway too, I think, and that's that's also part of the book, is that there's people react to the previous generation so you know i'm i'm describing my own reaction to the 90s and maybe people a little bit younger than me are are in reaction to the early 2000s and what they see as the failures and uh, insufficiency of the of the previous generation uh, and are aiming to course correct maybe even in a in a, a huge way
0: i want to talk about something you know, related to this, which is, um, you're a conservative, and right. probably the most—I would say—the most conservative idea in your book, <laughs> which is really out of favor. Uh, I would just, maybe conservative is not the right word word in this case. Might be old-fashioned. Uh, is the courage and honor that comes from a willingness to die for a nation or a cause, right. and. I would say on both ends of the political – other ends of the political spe- – two opposite ends of the political spectrum, libertarians and cosmopolitans. So well, you could say they're, they have something in common, but I'm thinking of progressives who would describe themselves as citizens of the world and libertarians who would also describe themselves in some sense that way. Both groups downplay or find national borders appalling or uh, destructive or unhelpful, and they look right. at the idea of dying for your country as – Antiquated, or worse, foolish, perverse, yeah, yeah, stupid, just irrational. Like, why would you do something like that? Why are they wrong? What What did you find in your? I mean, you, you really romanticize right. the the rebels who who were part of the Easter Rising in 1916, who at the time it looked like they died for nothing, um, right? And whether they that sacrifice was worth it today is a different question. But talk about why you you look at them the way you do
1: well i mean it was the most countercultural uh, yeah it, it's you say it's old fashioned i would say it's almost countercultural at this point i mean i was i was raised in this you know i we describe this liberated 90s but you know i would even say my public school education right would have would have emphasized uh and juxtaposed um say a little film footage of the boys going over in 1917 and a little uh, fife and drum of over there, over there, and then immediately pan toward uh, utter carnage and destruction and the meaninglessness of it. Um, And and it was emphasized in a sense like how strange, how stupid and deluded and useless and vain um, their deaths were and in many cases yeah I I would say they're onto something (laughs) uh, I would say not that they're entirely wrong but I I, I would say um, you can criticize their commanders for spending their lives like they were nothing Um, but I'm now hesitant to criticize them uh, the, the, the soldiers as Totally deluded, Um, and and I'm actually more likely to blame the the later delusion on their on their leaders. Um, But uh, the the fact is, you know, now lots of little transformations happen when you have a child, but one of the ones that gets talked about, I think, very, you know quietly or, or sometimes expressed among men, or at least among a couple of fathers I know, which was that um, you just meet your child. It's just, your baby is just born, and you suddenly feel a couple of things. One, you feel the desire to be a better version of yourself, <laughs> right? You suddenly, you feel inadequate yeah, to yeah. to the task. I, at least I did. Uh, you're
0: not alone. <laughs>
1: But you also feel, I think this is pretty common among men, and it's I don't think it's talked about often in public, but you also feel suddenly and strangely, and this can even frighten you, readier to kill or to die um, on behalf of this child, right? Like if it came to it, I would throw my life in front of a moving bus to save this child, you know. If it, if, it, if the if the you know the bus is careening down at the stroller and it was near the near the stroller, of course you'd just throw your life away immediately. Um, and that you'd be happy to do so, and that is the basis for this larger sense of uh, patriotism or this larger idea of the nation as a home, which it. It it is in in certain times it requires you to be courageous and indomitable and valiant and proud and willing to willing to die uh to to safeguard it because it provides and not just because it provides all these goods, right? Like I hate talking about it in this econometric way.
0: Instrumental way, yeah.
1: Yeah, in an overly instrumental way. But it, it the fact is it does provide those goods. And so just as you would defend your child from harm and you would be willing to do violence to others to prevent the harm to your child. There are times when, uh, someone intends the harm or the death or destruction or the s- suborning of your nation. And, um, it will require some great sacrifice on your part to, um, to keep that nation alive in, into the future. And of course, what, what, what is fascinating about the the rebels of 16 that I'm, I'm talking about is how self-conscious they were about this, about this idea of, well, even if it's a doomed battle, we have to put it up because we have to keep alive at least the tradition of rebellion. You know, there's not, There hasn't been a rebellion in our generation. And if we don't rebel... Then the tradition dies, and, the, and the, in a sense, the nationhood uh, dies with it. Um, you know, they predicted uh, as they were going in. You know, you can look at their letters. Patrick Pierce and others said, "Well, people will say hard things of us now, but we'll be blessed by unborn generations." And of course, and he was right. And what, what it, well, the astonishing thing is is that he was right. Is that they were at first denounced as. Uh, traitors and communists uh, and then as as people gradually came to know who they were they were blessed as the the saviors and deliverers of the Irish nation which and I, I have to emphasize this was right re- universally recognized as a kind of failed state <laughs> um, and so to to Im- their sacrifice it gives it, it gives the Ireland, the pride of nationhood back again. Um, uh, you know, it, it, it was countercultural for them to speak about their nation in that serious way. Um, and, it, and it totally transformed that country. Uh, and, uh, you know, the some revisionist historians would say for the worse, they would say, you know, the costs of leaving the United Kingdom... The costs of continuing conflict in Northern Ireland were too much, um, and you could debate that. Uh, I think, however, uh, the loss of of the Irish nation itself would have would have been a greater loss. Um, and uh, yeah. well, you would have
0: you would have been even uh, more weightless um, had that happened. I think, I think, you know, meaning is a a tricky word. But I think you're getting at something quite deep that is very difficult for a modern person to think about, which is you know, if you made a list of what you're willing to die for, I think most of us would say that nothing. <laughs> okay, maybe our children. Yeah, maybe. And I want to talk about parenting in a minute. Uh, we'll come back to that in a second. But outside of our children, which people would say, well, that's just biological. That's just evolution. Of course, you'll die for your children. But is there a cause that you would even risk your life for? Most of us would struggle to answer that in America in 2019 because life is easy uh, for many, many people. Uh, that That's a feature, not a bug, that I don't have enough
1: to well, think about it. It is a feature, and, and it, should be, it should be jealously uh, uh, praised as a feature that most of us don't have to do this. But there are moments of stress and stress in history, where you do have, where where someone will be called upon to do it, and one could imagine it, um, you know, one could imagine a conflict in the future where um, John Paul Jones's sentiment, "Give me liberty or give me death,"
0: You mean, you mean Patrick Henry,
1: Patrick uh, Patrick you, Henry? Yeah, or,
0: I, I have to quote the first part of that actually, because as soon as you started that, I was thinking of Patrick Henry. He says, "Is life so dear?" Or peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery, forbid it, Almighty God, I know not what choice others may make, but as for myself, give me liberty or give me death and that's you know that 's a heck of a speech
1: <laughs> right and, and, actually, and, that, and that that rhetoric exact rhetoric of slavery as the alternative features in in the in the in the rebellion i 'm talking about and You know, one could one could easily imagine, um, or maybe not so easily, but one could imagine if um, you were, if the United States uh, fell into civil strife and depression and decline, and suddenly was offered the humble tutelage of Beijing's tender ministrations, modeled on what's being done in the Xinjiang province. Suddenly this willingness to kill and die for an idea or an ideal, a uh, an old scrap of parchment which had heretofore been deemed a, a tribute to the hypocrisies of the founding generation, some some of that would make sense again. It would yeah. feel urgent and necessary.
0: And, and on, the, uh, on the flip side, it must be admitted – I'm sympathetic to your point – but on the flip side, it must be admitted that the – The stoking of that willingness to die, of course, leads to militarism that is not so romantic, not so good. So we we want to keep it in perspective. But I also I can't help as you talk I can't help thinking of uh, of uh, Tennyson's poem "Ulysses," um, which I can't quote entirely from memory. It's quite long, so I've cheated and looked it up here. But uh, what I was going to say before is that. If, if you're not willing to die for anything, you might not be willing to live for much. And I think that's a—it's a cliche, but I think there is something there. And I think that's gets at the weightlessness that you felt before, uh, before you had a, a daughter and before you connected back to your Irish heritage. But I want—I want to read a couple lines from Ulysses, which is um, is a romance, a romantic view that I held when I was a child. He's talking about Ulysses is old at this point. He's done all his great trips and Trojan War, and he says, um, he's about to die. He says, death closes all, but something ere the end, some work of noble note may yet be done, not unbecoming men that strove with gods. And then he, you know, he says at the end, uh, though much is taken, much abides, and though we are not now that strength which in old days moved he- earth and heaven, that which we are, we are, one equal temper of heroic hearts, made weak by time and fate. But strong and well to strive to seek to find and not to yield, and that that kind of heroism is just't it's just not part of our country anymore, for whatever reason, you know it's just not
1: we don't um right i mean it's not part of our education system it's not um you know like people even a hundred years ago at a boys' school. You, we would have athletic programs, and the athletic programs were not just about self-discipline, like a school of self-discipline, but in a sense they were kind of a preparatory uh, for potential, uh, you know, enlistment in armed forces. Right? They're yeah. they're, they're uh, and now we talk about uh, our athletic programs as sort of like preparing you for the job market someday for the, for the strife and conflict or, or whatever the self-discipline it requires to succeed there. Um, and we hide this idea of, of bravery, um, and honor for, uh, from people. And also that, you know, we, uh, we teach tolerance, which is very good in a, a diverse society, but, um, you know these these martial virtues and and the, this this view of heroism also requires intolerance, right? Intolerance of injustice, intolerance of uh, slavery, intolerance of Depression. you know yeah oppression or foreign rule or or whatever. Um, and listen, you know this is not immediately applicable in my life as far as um, you know. I, I have no. Great work of violence. I can recommend to anyone to do <laughs> uh, to God. do right. Yeah. Now. Um, you know, maybe I, maybe I will in the future. Uh, but uh, you know, people who know me know me and uh, know me as someone who's pretty skeptical of of war in the in the modern age. But um, but I I did still feel in writing this book that meditating on this history, meditating on my own upbringing um that this idea of putting sacrifice at the heart of manhood was still useful to me it was still it still helped me make sense of my life it still helped me um make sense of what would be right or wrong to do uh on behalf of my children and uh, on my family and also of course on behalf of you know my uh, my country or my countries and my and my church too i mean there, there, there has to be this willingness to risk um uh or or else life becomes not just enervated but also quite boring
0: <laughs> yeah i, I want to it's an important point i, I want to emphasize that you know I, I don't think either of us are suggesting that violence is a good idea or that war is a good you know it's a wonderful way that People get tested and 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 turned into something more superior. It's the way people get killed. It's a horrible. No, oh, it is horrible. Horrible historical failure most of the time. And but I think the, the more important point here is about is passion and sacrifice. What are you passionate? about? not just you know saying what are you willing to die for? Maybe is it's, it's over dramatic. What are you passionate about? What would you sacrifice for? And I I think. Um, I want to turn to the parenting issue. You you write um, an extraordinary uh, indictment of our culture of parenting. You say, it's as if this language of getting ahead and technocratic manipulation becomes the default mode of thinking around us. and We we adapt ourselves to it when we don't know what to say. I'm discovering now how much parenting advice and guidance is packaged this way, how it recasts fathers, not merely as providers, but as social engineers, as wonks. Read to your child because children who read with their parents on average make a million dollars more over life. Eat dinner with your child because a child who eats at a family table becomes more sociable and in the long run will marry better and get more promotions. Cuddle with a child. Cuddle children get better mortgage rates as adults, as if parenthood could be judged by the grades we get in school or the salaries we achieved. And I think that's a real, it's a, you know, obviously it's, there's some um, exaggeration there, but I do think. <laughs> there is a temptation is there yeah there is a temptation to see our job as parents as uh as creators of our child's futures which of course to some extent it is when in fact i like to simply say it's part of the human experience to be with your children and to interact with them in at dinner it has nothing to do with what kind of spouse they'll become or what kind of parent they'll become or what they'll be able to do at work. It's just a glorious part of being alive and human. And um, I don't want to measure it. I don't want to find out. I don't
1: need to measure it. There is something also kind of um, deeply double-minded in our culture about this, which is that um, on the one hand, it's like publicly the ideal uh, the the master idea of our politics the one permissible license for all political motivation should be egalitarian I- I- achieving a more egalitarian world an egalitarian society and yet privately all the advice to parents <laughs> is here's how to get the like extra 0.2% advantage for your child and how you should you know dedicate Grab yourself it. fanatically <laughs> To it, um, there there is a kind of uh, weird double mindedness that way. Um, Great point, but I do, but I do think that there is a, a way that I mean this, and this book weaves together the public and the private in this way because I, I see it weave together in my own life that um, you know oh, when in the 1990s this sense of authority over children was considered authoritarian and I could see my mother and my school and, and other authorities trying to not exercise their authority over me. Um, and and now I see it, this, this, this idea of social engineering, uh, escaping from, or this mode of thinking escaping from Vox or any other number of, of political magazines, Uh, And and colonizing our understanding of the family, right? Like it's just—I mean, it's it's a very natural thing for humans to do, right? Is to um, look for look for a pattern uh, in the world and then match it to everything. Um, And so you know, and that's part of what what this book was doing was suggesting a completely different pattern, Uh, you know. And hopefully, maybe, hopefully, readers will. Uh, I don't know, be inspired to imagine some of their own from it. Well, the the version of that cultural
0: um, story you're telling about parenting is my favorite version of its conflict with the egalitarian impulse is the column I'm not going to link to because I don't want to even try to find it. But I remember it vividly saying it's wrong to reach your children because it gives them a leg up. Shame on you. Right, (laughs) and you know, I don't know. I I I don't know where to start with that. We probably do. I could do an hour long monologue on what how I think about that that exhortation, but uh, I'll just say that I think that's bad advice. I'll just leave it at that. Um, You know, it's it's anyway. Um, I want to talk. I want to talk about nationalism. Sure. Uh, I want to read a uh, a couple. I thought uh, beautiful passages. You say, you say the following. Um, and what is a nation? In this way of thinking, a nation is at best a problematic, if still useful, administrative unit. That is, it's merely the arena in which technocrats and wonks do their work of making improvements to society. And now our men of letters cannot develop a political or moral thought without searching out a social science abstract from which to loot it. Most of the time, I find they don't read the studies. Why bother The authors of the studies know what the box desire to say and design studies to give their words the look of authority. It's a perpetual motion machine, and like a machine, it generates only the illusion of a working intelligence inside it. And then later on, you say the following. We are used to conceiving of the nation almost exclusively as an administrative unit. A nation is measured by its GDP. Its merit is discovered in how it lands on international rankings for this or that policy deliverable. A nation may have a language, but the priority is to learn the lingua franca of global business. Our idea of doing something for the nation is reduced to something almost exclusively technical. Policy wonks are the acknowledged legislators of our world. And I think that's uh, very insightful. Do you want to expand on that or say anything else? Um,
1: sh- listen, I mean, I, um, uh, you know, th- this book is also me uh, throwing a gauntlet down before my peers. Um, you know, I think readers will notice language I'm I'm borrowing and maybe baiting Tanahisi Coats with, and here maybe I'm tangling with Ezra Klein. But you know, I, I saw a uh, a paper issued by John Donahue and Stephen Levitt. Uh, yesterday, where they were looking at, um, I think, the 2001 paper on on abortion and crime. And it had this amazing statement tucked into it, which was, the choice of specification in the original paper provides a strong degree of discipline on the exercise we carry out. In contrast to the typical empirical economics paper, where the researchers run many specifications and only report a few of those, so it's just like in the middle of this paper by by yeah, a cheap shot a, a cheap shot at our profession. Well, not just a cheap shot, but like if that is true, and and Levit is right about it, this is the standard practice: is to run many specific specifications and basically run the data as many times as you need to to produce a set of results buried within it. That you can cherry pick and write the the thesis you were intending on writing the whole time. Uh, you know, I do I do worry that there is uh, I do sense that there is an incredible amount of intellectual fraud being perpetrated in our political discussions. Um, uh, a kind of an, an attempt by social scientists and allied journalists to um, insert ideas that everyone knows, but in fact, when you look at the the sample sizes that the, these facts about our social world and human behavior are based on, you know they're tiny. I mean, I saw this even in um, you know I started noticing this as, as political commentary has shifted in this direction of 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 where you have to know social science inside and out. To even begin opining, um, which itself is, by the way, I think is a kind of anti-democratic spirit. But be that as it may, you know, I found even papers that I agreed with, or or, or that I sensed or intuited were correct because I agreed with them. Say, like George Borjas looking at wages and immigration. You yeah, know, I would look at the actual size of the sample taken in Miami and just think how could anyone possibly make a judgment based on but you know, perhaps as little as 30 or 60 data points, you know, um, and make a sweeping statement about uh, uh mass immigration and the effect of wages. It just seemed fraudulent. Um
0: well I, I, so, rec- yeah. I recommend to all um Economists listening, that when you're in a seminar, I may have said this before, but when you're in a seminar and a result is presented, sometimes I just ask the presenter, "How many regressions did you run? Period. How many did you run? Uh, and of those, how many found that result that you're reporting here as confirming your hypothesis?" And we've right. talked a lot about this on the program. We're not. I'm not going to go into it now. But you're right. There's there's a Fraudulence a little strong, but not maybe so strong given the what we've learned about the replication crisis. It's, it's most blatant in psychology, but I think it's true in every social science field. And, and yeah. the number of books that are written each year relying on social science studies to give cover to clever and cute contrarian hypotheses to share at a cocktail party uh, – is deeply depressing to me and and a huge problem. That's the one way to look at it. The other way to look at it is it's all cynicism anyway. It's all just cover for what people want to say, as you're kind of hinting at. These are just the – this is what we drape our opinions in. We use use our social science, quote, research uh, studies show. We do that to give a scientific gloss to our opinions – and uh, I think that's really bad for science, and it's really well, and, and, unhealthy and for our discourse. That
1: it's unhealthy for democracy, right? I mean, that's that's fundamentally my um, where my contempt for this type of talk uh, colonizing all of politics. Now, of course, we should we should try to be informed by the best social science that's out there, and George Borjas um, is actually admirably uh, Frank about the limits of what can be known from the type of work he does. Um, and I actually, I think he's one of the best ones, but it's just, it was still shocking to me to find out how few data points, these arguments about the major issues affecting the American public, how few data points we're actually relying on, um, it's it's much. you know there there are, there are larger there are larger of course there are, there are studies done on on huge publicly available data sets and maybe that that work is a lot better to to look at because it can be checked a little bit more easily but i i find the studies show uh discourse to be anti-democratic right it's a it's a kind of priest craft oh, yeah. that bids the you know, the common person from saying what they want to say, right? Um,
0: well, no, it's, it's it is, That's a great phrase. It's a priest craft. And why, why economists are the highest priests um, is fascinating to me, given that our track record is mixed at best. And um, I don't know, maybe we use more Greek letters and more kind of
1: There's always a master science, right? It seems like, it's at least in the from the 20th century onward right there was uh, you know uh, psychology maybe had, had, had a run had, had a run yeah. and now e- economists are having a run yeah. um and frankly you know i i i the book is pushing against it because i'm i'm more interested in history and literature than in economics so i'm i'm fighting my corner in, yeah, the, no, in, that's the, right. in the world of in the world of letters before I forget, I, I want
0: to talk about um, your view of, of um, I would say, irony. I'm going to read one more excerpt. Oh, okay. Um, this is an aspect of American culture I don't see people talk about much, but I think it's really important. Um, you say... Mass media was my primary teach- teacher growing up and it taught me and my friends how to conform with one another. It slipped under the table to me a lesson that sincerity is a kind of weakness that it will be used against me. And that any sentiment at all, anything that could expose you to the danger of ridicule or the genuine possession of an emotion should be double and triple saran wrapped in irony. I suppose we do this for safety somehow as if unwrapped passion itself is so flammable; it would consume our little worlds at the instant we exposed it to open air. And I felt that myself many times about our culture. That, that you know, the hipster, the person who's the person who's cool, is ironic all the time. That sincerity is uh, mocked, and I just think it's a terrible aspect of our culture. Um, it, there's a great moment in your book where you talk about. Uh, a, a drunken night where someone gets up to recite a poem and and cries and that 's um that 's prime mockery material For, the drunk part makes it a little more complicated but but somebody stands up to recite something and and finds it so moving that it brings them to tears. We, we turn away from that in America, I think a lot, and I think that 's a great loss
1: yeah i mean yeah that was um I was describing a night in in the the passage you read from was I went back to uh, a language learning group that my mother was a part of, Dalti Nagoyoga, which is students of Irish in in America. And there weren't that many young people there. um, There were a few. And we were kind of ducking away from the, the normal practice of sharing a party piece right in, in ireland you you this is very typical my family does this now too in, in late get-togethers is you know there's often each person almost is associated with a song you know my father would be the rocky road to dublin or i would be the patriot game and you know you kind of go around the room and you ask them to do their song so we're doing this at, at Daltina Gaelga and the three, you know, the younger people, myself and two others, are ducking this. And and I felt like we ducked it because um, because of this cultural formation. Um, you know, and there, there was an odd way in which, um, uh, you know, even, even the simplest thing is like romance, right? The romance uh, between a young man and a young woman that all of the popular culture around this when I was growing up was in a sense of you might be encouraged to open your heart to another person, but you would have to leaven it with some acknowledgement of how stupid or silly or flawed you were uh, in in doing this. Um, as if you couldn't just say "I'm in love with you like the the most natural to me the, the now the most natural thing to say and um, and so yeah I, I I found that this thing that ha- at least had existed in Irish culture and it still does to some degree um, like I said it happens late at night uh, maybe when the doors... To the public are closed. Um, you know th- that um, there's something deeply satisfying about just saying what you love and trying to honor it in a straightforward way. That somehow American pop culture, in a, in a, in a very insidious and probably an unconscious way, almost forbid us to do. Oh, it's emergent. No
0: one's no one's decreeing it. There's no memo that says, "Don't be sincere. Be ironic. Make fun of anybody who's overly honestly emotional." Um, but
1: that is the our right. And there, but there is something moving. And of course, you know the the young man I was talking about who's reading this poem. You know, he grew up in uh, West Belfast, which you know he was a child born just before the Good Friday Agreement, you know, or not too long before the Good Friday Agreement. So, you know, he would have older cousins, older especially uncles and um, parents who were involved in a horrible section of Irish history and had to moralize themselves for the difficulty of uh that that conflict imposed on them and the and and uh to get through it and like i said it was it was almost alien to me uh and yet uh, alien to me as an american to watch him recite this poem by bobby sands and then by the middle of it just be sobbing openly in front of people he just met And yet it wasn't alien to me as a human, right? Like I was deeply moved um, by it. And um, yeah, I wanted to connect with that, uh, that part of myself. Um, And I found it easier to do in this uh, newer language, right? Um, It wasn't just the, the Irish language of, you know Galga it was the this irish Irish language of just unwrapped, raw emotion, which uh, was was itself liberating. <laughs> well, if I were Irish, uh,
0: one of my songs would be four Green Fields. I would sing right. that i would I would bellow that out, sober even but um and i will <laughs> I will say I, it's an interesting thing i you know parents um, it's part of our job to embarrass our children. Um, one of my children's great embarrassments is that in parking garages, which have very good acoustics, uh, when they were younger, I would often sing My Love is Like a Red, Red Rose, uh, the Robert Burns poem at at the top of my lungs because I enjoyed the sound of it. And that I think even in ancient times was probably embarrassing to children. But uh, I, I, I like to think that when they become parents, God willing, that they will sing in parking lots or at least sing something with emotion uh because i think it's um it's like you know it's you know it's like the line uh, dances dance as if no one is is looking right. uh, my view is you should probably you should try to dance that way all the time it, why do you care if someone's looking it's just not
1: it's better and <laughs> and you know this this stuff is still existent like it's still uh it still exists i mean there are Even in America, right, there are sometimes military ceremonies where people allow themselves this kind of open emotion. There are – I mean in Ireland itself, even today, even as I describe it as this kind of post – as in this post-national anti-nationalist phase, you know, when – when the doors close at the GAA club in my father's town, uh, and it's just the men who are left in there late at night, people will start singing these these old songs, and even young people will listen, kind of respectfully and solemnly, as if this. It's almost as if this um, tradition of song and balladry and national sentiment is kept. Um, uh, you know, like an axe or a fire extinguisher under glass, mm-hmm. and sort of like a break open in case of emergency. Um, and I've seen that all across Europe. I mean, I see. Um, you know, I got a chance a year or so ago to go to Budapest, and I saw. I talked to people about how their culture had kind of been in the '90s colonized by Disney. Right, that like Disney films, everything had come over from America and filled in and all the gaps that the Russians had left behind. Um, But there was this thriving, uh, what they called a dance hall movement. And, you know, they, in the cities, they'd bring in the, the essentially like peasant national culture into the city for song or for dance. And it, it took me right back to the, the early scenes of this book and the early, my early youth of seeing, you know, cultural preservationists trying to document these different dances and local traditions before they expire and people anxious to see them. Right. And, and also kind of uh, folk blurriness about where it all leads back to. Right. Like I remember one particular dance was introduced and it was said, well, you know, this one comes from, you know, a borderland between, Hungarian and Romanian speakers so is it Hungarian is it Romanian I, you know who can really say here it is <laughs> and, and everyone loved it <laughs> so so even in the even in that spirit of of trying to to dwell on or recover you know this recover this idea of who we are uh, there can even be this kind of generosity and this acknowledgement that um, You know, even as we do this, we're we're what we're uncovering is that we're human, and we're we're also like our neighbors in some in some way too.
0: I you know I was talking decrying the loss of of sincerity and the unwillingness to portray emotion publicly, and yet I think there are two places where we do allow that in American culture. One is sports, uh, and the second is uh, concerts. People show un. they expose their rawness in those two settings. Uh, you could argue there's not much at stake there, and that's why it's uh, it's not like saying "I love you" to someone, uh, which has consequences. So, screaming maniacally for your favorite team—something I do occasionally—I <laughs> don't want to. I'm not not uh, making fun of it, but that that's that's okay. You know, that's that's all right. And in fact, uh, it's one of the bizarre aspects of technology today is that you can watch. Dozens, if not hundreds, of people who have filmed their own post-game, post-goal, post-touchdown celebration, post-victory celebration. Uh, I'm a Tottenham Hotspur fan. I was. I watched their recent um, extraordinary uh, game against uh, Ajax, and uh, the bar exploded when, at near the end of the game, Tottenham scored. What was essentially the winning goal, and um, you could watch that celebration all around the world on on Twitter and on YouTube. You can watch individuals going nuts in their own living room versus people in bars versus parties. Um, so that's that's our um, that's our and, ritual. We, we do have but, some,
1: and you know, it's it also it fills in in a sense where. Other places have vacated. I have a good story about this recently, too. So the my mother's best friend who introduced her to my father, this London Irish, Irish woman, uh, Teresa Murphy, she has worked for and is a passionate fan of Fulham Football Club. And Fulham, I believe, was just rele- relegated to the lower league, right, um, after it got beat by Newcastle. Um, I'm I'm not sure. But the football club immediately put out this video that was shared across the internet of one of their local fans and kind of a wordsmith or a media smith kind of giving this like speech about, um, you know, we've known the highs, but we're the oldest football club in this city. And now we're in this low point, and let me wallow in the lows for a minute, and then begin to talk about hope yep. going forward. Sure. And it was a beautiful <laughs> video. It was, you know, he's walking along the the little stadium, the talking about the great white wall of fans that show up for Ful- Fulham football. And but I what I realized was that, like, you know, this it, the the reason this resonates so much is that this isn't just about football, right? This is, this is meant to speak to something deep within us, right? This deep thing that we can barely express elsewhere, which is that almost all of us feel at some point in our lives that we have been kicked around, that all of the breaks have gone against us. We're in this pit of failure and yet we have to moralize ourselves to move forward in in hope, and so it, it was just the the depth of emotions that this was this little two minute montage was touching on. This you know it really was um, bardic poetry. I mean in the in the oldest sense uh, of the word, um, you know, trying to to give the tribe meaning after after great loss and how do you do it with hope <laughs> it was but it was I,
0: beautiful <laughs> but i want to extend that because i do think you're you're looking at the personal level and yet i think what makes the that emotion of that speech more powerful is the fact that we want to be in in things together with other people i mention uh you know why am I a Tottenham Hotspur fan? Well, mainly because my two of my sons are, and you know I did hug a bunch of strangers in that bar after that goal. <laughs> I it's uh that, but I wish my sons had been there. They, they were they're scattered uh, right now, and I and I didn't get to watch it with them. But the reason I cared was for them and other fans to the extent I, I'm part of this this nation of of sports fans, and it's just one of our nations that we have. It's partly a substitute. It's partly a complement to our other forms of nationality. And I, I i want to close, let you close with a comment on America because America is discussed in passing in the book, culturally, as, as we've talked about already, most of the national talk in the book is about Ireland. Um, we recently discussed it, America's nationalism, in passing with Arthur Brooks. I'm speculating that the challenge of recovering civility in our political culture is that the American tribe just doesn't motivate a significant chunk of people who live here the way it did in the past, that we have other tribes who've joined, and they, they conflict. And so we look at others with contempt, and that's, I think, a horrible thing, and I think it's a threat to the country. Um, as I kind of mentioned before, a lot of us think about ourselves as people who just happen to live here rather than as, say, Americans. Certainly my libertarian friends, some of my friends on the left, feel that way. You I mean, just assimilate yeah. when you get here. You're not into the melting pot as an Irish-American. You're nothing. You're just this thing who happens to live here without the burden of that of, hyphen of, or the identity, unless you're African-American, which you can't escape it. So that's a whole different challenge. Uh, but, but for many of us, we craft a stateless identity without ethnic roots and i'm curious if you think uh whether that can change and if it can't um and i'm not sure it can uh what do you think's going to happen here
1: well i think um i think the premise is a little wrong um in what you said um i would challenge it i would say that the phenomenon you're describing where uh, you know, in a sense, a lot of us are in these political tribes or cultural political tribes that are in this, you know, seemingly zero-sum contest to define what is America, what is America going forward. And I I agree with you that it's a danger. But my view of nationality and nationalism, particularly political nationalism is that it, it is a product of stress and strain, um, humiliation and failure many times um, or, or or exaltation uh, and that because America is this global superpower and we can you know arguably lose wars we can lose a 20-year war in Afghanistan. Handed over to the exact same tribal people that we went in there to fight after 20 years. And there is no diminishment of American uh, wealth or prestige that's noticeable or hubris. on a day-to-day day-to- day-to- level. Or hubris. Yeah. Right, no, 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 exactly. No, so I think, I think America is uniquely insulated from the pressures that cause this national and nationalist spirit to come out, but it won't always be so. You know, maybe our hubris will lead us into something where, like I said, um, we're under pressure. I do think, um, you know, I do think a type of American, uh, you know, the so-called Trump voter, core voter in the primary, felt that their version of America was under stress and strain, and so voted for. That's certainly who, certainly true. Brexit voters as are, well. Uh, yeah, articulated that loss. So I, I do think that that nationalist strain, I, you know, I think there are a lot of reasons for it. It's not just, uh, you know, it's immigration, you know, uh, it's immigration combined with low native fertility that gives you a sense that you're not actually a part of the future of where uh, where you live in any meaningful way. But it's also this this larger reaction to, you know a kind of internationalist political consensus that i think was anti-democratic in spirit in the last 25 years uh, so that that i think is bringing it out a little bit but the um that sense of american nationalism when was it strongest it was strongest during the world wars who's strongest in a period after the Civil War or after the War of Independence. And then it, it kind of fades away and, and these other internal cultural battles um come to the forefront. So oh. like I said, what I, I think I think people will recognize across their partisan divides, their their cultural war divides, their commonality as Americans when when we feel that the common inheritance that it is to be an American is in some way under threat. I just don't think America is in that position now.
0: I guess I had a different point I was trying to make. Oh, that was interesting. It's not quite the way I was thinking about it. I, I, you, you reacted to the the populist version of nationalism. Uh, and I I do want to alert listeners to the, if you missed it, the episode that we did with Yoram Hazzoni, um, on his book, The Virtue of Nationalism, which touched on some of these themes. But I was actually seeing something more related to what I talked about with Jill Lepore, uh, which is, you know, what's our story? You know, you, you talked about the Irish story a lot in this book, and it's really right. interesting. And for most, many of us don't have an understanding of, much of an understanding of Irish history. It's was very powerful and interesting. But, you know, what's our American story? What, what is that? What's the story we tell ourselves that, that we have in mind when we say, "Oh, I'm an American," and I think we had that story again. There were groups that were excluded from it, obviously, in in horrible, brutal ways. Uh, so that they have to have they have a different story, which I which I get and 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 deeply uh, sympathize with. But for the so-called mainstream quote average American, whatever that means, uh, you need a story, and it. The one I just sort of hinted at one, you know, for some people, it's, there's a there's a story, and then there's a footnote that we didn't live the story fully for Native Americans and blacks, so it's an imperfect story. I can't totally celebrate it, but I can celebrate it a lot uh, for this and that. Or I could say, for example, sure, we never lived up to uh, that, that all human beings in our borders were entitled to life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness— we were we enslaved people. We had a culture that made it harder for women to express themselves uh, in many politically as well as, say, culturally and socially and professionally. We oppressed and killed Native Americans. So but we had an aspiration toward greatness that that we could be held to account for. And that was that's an that's an American story. You, you, you might disagree with it. You might think it's dishonest. You might think it misses not a lot and you might pick a different one. But that's a story that we can tell ourselves that – about who we are, that we aspire to greatness. Uh, I feel like that's dying, that whole idea here, and I'm not sure we could survive the death of that story.
1: It, yeah, or, mean, it a it, story.
0: It doesn't mean that one. It has to be a story. It Otherwise, is there's no I, nation.
1: I do agree. I mean, and my book was written a little bit with this anxiety at heart too, Um but I, like I said, I think there are. I don't think we can predict what stresses and strains will come to America in the future. We can guess, right? Like I can guess that China is this rival superpower, and not just this rival uh, military and industrial power, but as a rival model for statecraft. Um, I, I think could exert pressure on us and that what happens is that that this um, uh, you know what happens in the Irish story can happen here There, there are lots of themes in Irish history that are still submerged or that didn't come out in the 1916 rising right like they picked up on the the uh, 1798 rebellion which was mostly led by protestants um protestant irish nationalists but they didn't pick up on the like deism or you know other other aspects that were buried in that in that thing they they focused on the republicanism and on the the question of political sovereignty and i think just as the same way is that the in in america's future whatever happens to us whatever befalls us uh suddenly the parts of the american story that are relevant to that will suddenly be jumping out as highlights in our um in our consciousness and and that's how we'll we'll build out in the future i think you know like i said uh it, it might be a story of liberation, and so Lincoln might feature uh, bravely in that. It might be a story of political fight for ind- independence of action and sovereignty, and so the founding generation will stand out. You know, I don't know. Um, it might be a struggle with tyranny in, in, in Europe or something, and and suddenly FDR and that story of uh, an increasingly diverse America shaped by immigration coming together as one will be highlighted. Something like that will happen to America in the future. Something, some struggle, some stimulus that will bring out our our sense of our nationality and will bring out what's valuable in it uh, in that time, you know, whether it's a sense of liberation, a sense of, of better justice or equality, We'll f- we will find those, or whether it's some great compromise, some great democratic compromise, we'll f- we'll find stories in our history that resonate with that, um, and so you retell the story again, uh, and uh, that's only human.
0: My guest today has been Michael Brendan Doherty. His book is "My Father Left Me Ireland." Michael, thanks for being part of EconTalk.
1: Thank you so much.